Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Sandra Deist? David and Sandra Deist lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan. David was a successful insurance salesperson, and Sandra was an accomplished equestrian competitor. The couple had three children. Sandra owned a horse named Dexter, who she kept in a barn and cared for regularly. David and Sandra were active in their church. They were well-respected members of the community. They represented themselves as financially well-off. For example, all three of their children went to private school. People described them as popular and likable. On November 19, 1998, an incident occurred that drastically changed their lives. Sandra sustained a head wound while in her barn. She told people that her horse kicked her in the head, although later I'll talk about a different story that emerged. After the incident, people said that Sandra's personality changed. She was never the same after that. She began having feelings of depression and eventually took medications to treat it. Now moving to the timeline of the crime. On March 29, 2000, David called 911 and told the dispatcher that his wife shot herself. He implied that this was not her first attempt to harm herself. When the police arrived, they found Sandra dead. Her body was in her bed, and she clearly had a massive head injury. The police interviewed David. He said that the night before, he was watching a basketball game on television and fell asleep on the couch. He woke up to the sound of a gunshot. He ran into their bedroom and saw his wife on the bed with a gun in her hand. She was bleeding from her head. He took the gun out of her hand and removed the magazine before calling 911. The gun was a Smith & Wesson 9mm semi-automatic pistol. It was registered to David. David talked about how his wife was never the same after that incident in the barn when her head was injured. He claimed that his wife tried to harm herself on three prior occasions. He played voicemails that Sandra had left for him sometime before her death. In one of the voicemails, Sandra said her life was over. The police believed that David's emotional reaction was consistent with a distraught husband. They thought his story matched the available evidence. 
The police interviewed some of Sandra's friends. They were not as convinced about the story. They did not think that she was depressed in the days leading up to her death. An autopsy was performed. The police figured this was just a formality given what they knew about the case. To their surprise, the autopsy revealed that Sandra had been shot two times in the head, one time above her ear and one time about an inch higher. It did not matter which bullet struck her first. Either one would have incapacitated her instantly. In addition, she did not have any gunshot residue or blood spatter on her hands. The police went back and talked to David again. They asked her the clothes he wore on the day his wife died. He gave them the clothes without an argument. He seemed cooperative. The police didn't see anything on the clothing, but of course they still sent it to a lab for analysis. Later, small amounts of blood spatter were found on David's clothing. The police sent his pistol out to be tested. They wondered if it could have malfunctioned and fired twice, even if the trigger was only pulled once. Technicians concluded there was nothing wrong with the weapon. David was given a so-called lie detector test. These are pseudoscientific machines that are supposed to detect lies. The police use them to gain leverage against suspects by convincing them the results are valid. In this case, however, the police believed the machine indicated that David was being truthful, and they decided to stick with that story. Lie detectors, of course, cannot determine this, but the police had some level of belief in the test. Therefore, they were a little confused. The results did not match the physical evidence. Their faith in the polygraph was shaken by the facts of the case. In addition to the two gunshot wounds, there were no reports of robberies in the area and no forced entry into the house. When Sandra died, the only people in the house other than her were David and their three children. The police were able to get another break in the case after speaking to Sandra's sister. She told them that in the spring of 1999, Sandra called her and said, if anything ever happens to me, I left a letter in the china cabinet. The police obtained a search warrant and searched David's house when no one was there. In the china cabinet, they found a sealed white envelope. In the envelope was a letter written by Sandra. I will paraphrase it here. What happened to her on November 19, 1998 was no accident. David beat her with a hammer slash axe. I believe she was referring to a carpenter's hatchet. David came up behind her while she was in a horse stall and hit her repeatedly. He did not stop until she told him she would sell her horse. She ran to a neighbor's house when David called 911. She was afraid David would come back and kill her. If anything happened to her, David could be the killer. At the end of the note, she indicated she would never harm herself. The letter contained a fingerprint from Sandra, her DNA was on the envelope, and the signature matched. She had a distinctive signature. David was once again questioned by the police. He said that Sandra must have left the note to frame him. She wanted to get revenge. There was no record of Sandra contacting the police. If he really attacked her, why didn't she report it to the police? Throughout the investigation, the evidence was stacking up against David. It didn't get any better for him when the police found out he was having an affair with his secretary, Linda Ryan. The affair started in July 1998. They found a number of cards that David and Linda had written to each other. The cards strongly indicated the couple was highly interested in sex. One card was a coupon for eight hours of 
what they referred to as hot sex. As it turns out, a get-out-of-jail-free card would have been more appropriate. The police interviewed Linda. She said the relationship started off as just sex, but then they fell in love. David told her that his marriage was effectively over. Their plan was to leave their spouses and marry each other. Linda divorced her husband, but David did not leave Sandra. Linda became frustrated and issued David an ultimatum. He had to choose between his wife and her. On March 27, 2000, two days before Sandra died, David told Linda that he made the decision to divorce his wife. At 11 p.m. that night, Linda Ryan visited a website that allows someone to design their own engagement ring. I guess she was excited at the prospect of being with a man who cheats on his wife. Nothing says marriage material more than that. As the police continued their investigation, they found out that a few weeks prior to Sandra's death, she left him a voicemail suggesting that he pushed her too far. They were going to separate. David had taken out several life insurance policies on Sandra, totaling about $500,000. The insurance policies were set up to pay out regardless of the cause of death. David was in financial trouble. He was behind on his children's tuition and had taken out a large loan. Separation or divorce would not solve his financial problems. However, Sandra's death would. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2, a new podcast from Crowd Network. David was arrested in September of 2000. In March of 2001, he was convicted of first-degree murder and possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony. For the murder, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. For the gun charge, he was sentenced to two years in prison to be served consecutively. In 2008, David Deist died in prison at the age of 58. Now moving to my analysis. Was David Deist actually guilty of murder? He maintained his innocence the entire time he was in prison and filed numerous unsuccessful appeals. Let's take a look at the evidence both for and against the idea that David was guilty, starting with the inculpatory evidence. Sandra was killed by two gunshots to the head, which were fired by David's gun. He had purchased the weapon just three months earlier. The gun was covered in blood spatter, yet none of it was on her hands. No gunshot residue was on her hands either. David's clothing contained blood spatter. He conveniently grabbed the gun and removed the magazine, which of course supplied a reason physical evidence would tie him to the gun. David was having financial problems. He had taken out life insurance policies on Sandra. David was having an affair and had recently told his mistress that he was leaving his wife. And Sandra left a note suggesting that if she died, 
David killed her. Moving to the exculpatory evidence, no one witnessed Sandra's death. There was no video. Sandra may have left a letter behind to frame him. She told everyone that her horse kicked her in the head, and David said the blood spatter was on his clothing because Sandra coughed on him. I view this as more inculpatory than exculpatory because the gunshots would have killed Sandra instantly. She wasn't coughing on anyone. When considering all the evidence, do I think that David was guilty? Yes, I think he was guilty in reality and guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Semi-automatic pistols do not magically discharge two times when the trigger is pulled only one time. Now looking at a few items in this case that stood out to me. Item number one, why did Sandra stay with David if he tried to kill her? Well, she may have been lying in that letter. It may be that David never tried to kill her in 1998, but he did kill her in 2000. If she was telling the truth and he did attack her with a carpenter's hatchet, Sandra may have stayed with him because divorce was not an option due to her religious beliefs and the image problem that divorce created. She was very sensitive to how other people viewed her, and she didn't think that divorce was consistent with a perfect family. She wanted to maintain the illusion of a perfect family. This is a surprisingly powerful motivator for many people. Item number two, David was an unusual murderer in some ways. For example, he made a number of mistakes before the murder and during the murder, but then he was very convincing to the police after the murder. It's not clear why he thought he could get away with the murder, considering that he shot his wife twice in the head. He didn't even give himself a chance at building an alternate theory of the crime, like he didn't try to damage the door to the house to make it look like somebody broke in. He was fully committed to the theory that the gun discharged twice, even though that was impossible. Considering the direction he went with his story, why didn't he just fire the gun one time? His wife would have been dead just the same either way. It may have been that David was really angry with her, or she woke up when he was getting ready to shoot her. He became worried that he would not kill her before she started screaming, therefore he panicked and pulled the trigger twice. Item number three, this case proves how a lie detector test is never good for a suspect. The lie detector indicated David was being truthful, but the police really didn't worry about that. Police officers only believe a lie detector yields an accurate result when it says somebody's lying. Essentially, a box with a little red light on it is equally as valid as a lie detector, and a lot cheaper. For that matter, the police could just write the words, you are lying, on a piece of paper and unfold it at the right moment. That would be way more economical. Item number four, it's hard to know what really happened in that barn in November of 1998. Did Sandra's horse Dexter kick her, or did David strike her with a carpenter's hatchet? Either scenario is plausible, especially considering her horse shared a name with a fictional serial killer. One thing is for sure, however, the note that Sandra left did hurt David's case. If something bad happens to one spouse and they leave a note like this, the other spouse is going to look guilty no matter what. This gave me an idea for mental health clinicians who counsel married couples. Some counselors use letter writing as a technique, like they have a client write a letter to someone meaningful in their life, perhaps a parent, child, friend, or a spouse. The letters usually contain apologies or some positive message. But what about letters designed to prevent homicide? 
like if a husband and wife came in for treatment and the wife was worried her husband was going to kill her, the counselor could have her write a bunch of letters implicating the husband and hide them all over the place. This would make the husband think twice about committing murder. He would know those letters would come up and he would be in some trouble. I don't believe this technique would really have much practical application as far as treatment, but it may have some diagnostic value. For example, if the counselor throws that letter writing idea out there and a client thinks about it seriously for more than a few seconds, perhaps they should reevaluate the quality of their marriage. Getting justice after a homicide is important, but not being killed in the first place is always a better strategy. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.